What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Take the baseline out. Uh-huh. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Hardwood Knox Podcast. I am Dan Pavalli, coming at you this time once again without my esteemed co-host, Andy Bailey, who is still slogging through some law school term papers and finals and and all that good stuff. Um, I am super pleased uh, to be joined, however, by Cole Zitwicker, who is an attorney like Andy is trying to be. And he's also the co-founder and writer for The Stepian, a scout for AtNet Scouts, and a contributor to The Step Back. And you can just hear him on podcast, too. He is absolutely fantastic. Um, before we get started, I just want to remind everybody to please rate, subscribe, and review us on iTunes. I asked Andy what he wanted as a Christmas present this year, and he told me he just wanted us to get to 100 ratings on iTunes. So if you can just help drum up those totals, we'll be forever indebted. Um, I'm also super excited because I didn't plan this, Cole, but I had Bleacher Report's Grant Hughes on the last episode, who is also an attorney, and it seems fitting that I'm bringing on two attorneys while Andy is away at law school to supplant him. Yeah, it's an attorney party, man. I'm I'm stoked. Thanks for having me. Um, Thank you for hopping on. It always seems, too, that lawyers are just great, like, NBA scouts or writers. I, I don't know if that's like a – do they prep you for that in law school and I don't know about it and I should have went to law school? I'm just – I'm kind of not miffed. I'm pleasantly surprised. I think law school is more like three years of why you don't want to be an attorney and you also learn analytical skills, so that might help with this. <laughs> <laughs> um, Cole and I today are going to be just talking about a bunch of youngsters with uh, a, f- a slant on first-year players, sophomores, third-year players and and fourth-year players. Uh, We are going to start with a rookie ladder, um, top five rookie ladder, which is going to be fairly easy, I think, at the tippy top. But as always, I'm going to throw it to our guest, Cole, and ask him, who would you have as number one on your rookie ladder right now? Well, I mean, this is pretty self-evident. Ben Simmons has been a transcendent player thus far. I don't know if you can really have anybody else just with the role he's been tasked with as an initiator of their offense. And he's been a legit probably top 40, top 35 player in the league conservatively thus far. So he's definitely my guy. What about you? Yeah, I don't even think it's it's reached the point, too, where if you don't have him at the top of your weekly ladder it's just clear like it, it's that supposed to be like this controversy because I don't know how you even do that like yes Donovan Mitchell is going through these hot stretches yes Jason Tatum doesn't know how to miss threes but I just are now it's almost like we're starting to take for granted what he does on a night in and night out basis yeah and he's doing it at a high level for in retrospect like historically point guards ball handlers primary initiators do not handle this kind of usage this efficiently they aren't showing what he's showing as an overall creator it takes a definite adjustment period we see that with a lot of these point guards dennis smith darren fox the primary ball handlers that are just trying to adapt to the speed of the nba game and if you turn on and watch uh simmons on tape he does not look like a rookie 
No, and he's doing it as well documented without a jump shot. It just, he doesn't even shoot threes. Like his most of his threes have been these half court heaves, and he just in part because he's able to just finish over people on command, but he's just so poised and under control and crafty when he gets into the lane or even when he's in the post. I, you know, whenever a player can't shoot, I'm I'm always hesitant to think that they're going to be dominant or even really good right off the bat. Uh, but he's just he's. I mean, he's just proved that wrong on every single level. And the, the one thing I'm just interested to see, and it has a lot to do with lineup combinations, but at what point will the Sixers, who are thin on the bench, so that's going to factor into it as well. I just want to see when those lineups where it's just Simmons kind of leading the way, when are they going to be net pluses routinely? When are they going to be able to tread water? Yeah, they've used a lot of different um, lineup combinations. I think just because Fultz being out, they don't really have that esteemed secondary ball handler yet. So you know, they've employed these monsters lineups with like Sarge playing with. I think they've been playing Rashawn Holmes in the starting lineup. I think that's yeah. just due to being deprived of depth. But definitely not ideal circumstances as far as spacing goes yet. And he's still being successful just because you see that size frame uh, burst combination getting to the rim. He's not even been a high level finisher yet, but he's finishing well enough to offset that lack of a jump shot. We've seen guys very rarely thrive in very high levels without a jump shot. Giannis, of course, and LeBron are like outlier generational finishers. So we'll see how far Simmons progresses there because I think that's really the key to his game. We had we did a mailbag on our last pod, and one of the questions that I actually didn't get to was they were asking how you would go about switching like Simmons's hand or or changing his jumper, and I didn't I don't know that I understand that type of question this early in the game because we've seen rookies who have terrible jumpers go on to you know kind of hit jumpers later on in their career. Yeah, you, know, you know LeBron James would be just a good example. You know, maybe Ben Simmons is never a lights out shooter, but we're talking about a guy who developed a consistent outside game, not even like three or four years into the, his career. He was midway through his career before he really started hitting those looks with consistency. And so that that doesn't really register as a red flag to me. Also, particularly because we've seen what Giannis Antetokounmpo is, has become without um, a long-range jumper, a, a consistent one anyway. And that's not even a compare necessarily Simmons to him, but if you're a selfless playmaker who can get to basically whatever spots he wants, it seems like, uh, there's a path to stardom there until you get your jumper going, or I guess even if you never get it going. Yeah, I think the the shooting thing is more about him just being a natural kind of right-handed finisher on the basket. He gets a lot of ambidexterity comments, but really he shoots left, from the perimeter, but he finishes almost always right. And he has pretty good touch, honestly, with his right. So some people have hypothesized that if he changed hands and started shooting with his right from the perimeter, he would have a better chance. It's kind of interesting. Um, I'm not sure if you can <laughs> you can completely remodel your jump shot that way and your mindset and approach. He's been decent at like foul line jump shots. I think he shoots those well enough to at least be a threat in those situations. But I think that's more along the lines of what people are talking about when they just want to test that right-handed touch. And is it just my last question on him though? Is it is it like too early to go there though? Like, is where I kind of land on it's like people who want Lonzo Ball to change his jump shot now. Can we at least give it a season before we're like trying to sh- change all these shooting forms? It, it, I just <laughs> I don't I don't understand it. Yeah, I'm I'm not a shooting coach, honestly. I don't know about the psyche and all that. I know that there's a lot of mentality and mental approach in shooting. And a guy like Lonzo, I think his biggest issue this year has been confidence, not necessarily jump shots. So I'd kind of ride it out and see if he can kind of clear that hurdle. But Lonzo was also a proficient three-point shooter at UCLA. Simmons has never been. So I get kind That's of true. more of the argument with Simmons. And it's I also – I kind of thought that he would – 
maybe soon or already. I thought that he was going to kind of develop like maybe this nice little floater uh, from close to mid-range and in, and it just it hasn't been there. I, the other day I looked it up, or it was last night, and he's like 3 of 14 on floaters this year, so that's a little bit disappointing. But that, that was a good point you made. He wasn't uh, a lights-out shooter at school the way Lonzo was at UCLA. Uh, who do you have as your second best rookie? And this is where things I, I think get a little bit more interesting. I think Tatum probably because he's been more consistent across the year. If you're doing like a weekly ranking system, I could see an argument for Mitchell because he's really surged on recently with the shot making. He's shown more proclivity as a point guard than I thought. And a lot of people thought he had as a passer learning from Rubio, more of a dribble drive guy. We didn't really know had that one foot explosion. So he's flashed there. But I think Tatum just for consistently contributing to winning basketball all season, it's kind of hard to take him out of that role just because he's been so damn efficient shooting from the perimeter. He's, played an off-ball role really to perfection, high-level thinker off-ball, which we didn't know about, and he's defended well, too. So it's considering his impact, I think you have to roll with Tatum, too. Yeah, that's that's actually right. That's that's probably another easy one. He doesn't – he just – it seems like whenever you're going to kick it out to him or he's going to fire a three off the catch, it's reached the point where you just expect it to go in. And like you said, he's been uh, better defensively than I thought he would be right off the bat. I know probably playing with a bunch of like-sized players where Brad Stevens can mix and match so many different assignments helps, but he's just he seems so steady in every single area, and I, I, he just he also just doesn't miss in crunch time. It seems like it's just you know Kyrie Irving's going to take a line share of the shots, but when he's getting looks, it's just he's not missing. He was shooting like the other day when I checked, like over sixty percent. Uh, in the clutch and the Celtics have gone into crunch time more than any team in the NBA it's just so uh, it's it's so damn impressive and uh, you know now when Danny Ainge had said oh we were going to take him number one overall I still wonder whether the Celtics would have had the guts to do it but now you can actually see it and look back to those comments and say all right he doesn't sound batshit crazy yeah, I mean, Tatum's put in a lot of work on his jump shot with Drew Hanlon, so he's refined some of his technique. I didn't think he was that good a professional shooter at Duke. He just was a little stiff. His release, I wasn't really that confident in, and he's ironed that out. It looks more smooth off the catch. He's getting open shots, and it's worth noting that he shoots considerably higher on open shots than he does in contested situations. But, I mean, he's getting he's getting unguarded shots in that offense because he's being optimally used. He gets situationally used as, like, a corner three-point shooter. He'll post up mismatches when they go with their big lineup or Jalen Brown's at the two, Tatum's at the three, and they'll kind of headhunt mismatches because Stevens is really good at, like, getting those guys the ball off flex cuts and advantageous situations. But you have to also give Tatum credit for buying into a team construct. I never really bought that narrative. A lot of guys were like, this guy's a mid-range chucker. He's going to have to like have the ball all the time in the mid post to derive value. I never really saw that. I thought that was just an overreaction to that narrative, and he's proven that to be correct. I might have actually fallen in uh, that like hyperbolic um, under that hyperbolic <laughs> umbrella because it, it's kind of like you said, though, for giving him credit to buying into this role. I, I thought he was going to need the ball more. We saw, uh, you know, and he was compared a lot to Harrison Barnes. And we saw Barnes kind of struggle when he was asked to play off the ball. Like he would just miss these quality shots because it seemed like he really wanted to kind of get in his own rhythm and control some of the possessions. And the fact that Tatum doesn't need to do that clearly is just absolutely, I don't want to use the word absurd, but it's been pleasantly surprising. And then when he kind of has had the opportunity to go at it on his own, he, he's been good there too. He was shooting almost 47% on drives, barely turns the ball over on the move, is passing more out of those drives um, than I thought. And he's not racking up assists, but the Celtics are like the expert team in making that those extra swing passes, it seems, too. 
So he's just, and he's been a monster when he's in transition, even when he has to finish through contract. He contact. He's just been. He's exceeded any sort of expectations that I would have had because I was kind of low on him. But I think even by any optimistic projections, he's kind of just blown that out of the water. I, like I don't know who was just predicting that he would be the second best rookie this year. I don't even know that I saw that ahead of the season. Yeah, nobody really saw the shooting coming to this extent. I don't know how he really could. A lot of guys were high on him as being an NBA-ready kind of player, the polished offensive game. I agree. I think that it was easier to bind in the air just the way that Duke played stylistically. A lot of isolation basketball, not a lot of off-ball movement. It was kind of your turn, my turn. They had great spacing, and Tatum was at the four a lot of the time. So in that respect, it was advantageous for him. But it gave him that kind of narrative that was only perpetuated by summer league play so he took a lot of those isolation mid-range fadeaways and everybody was, was getting worried about the shot quality but it was like he's not going to be allowed to play that way with brad stevens that's they're just kind of seeing what he can do so i think a lot of it is just at lower levels he what he wasn't utilized the same way as he's being utilized now we probably or at least i should have just given more automatic credit to brad stevens who is just like a magician i like Kyrie irving having the defensive season of his career just at looking at effort uh it's just i don't I, brad stevens is fantastic but anyway who would be maybe this is where things start to get interesting although i think it's probably pretty clear cut who do you have as your number three rookie right now uh donovan mitchell yeah i think that just his two-way play his character combined with that athleticism, I think a lot of people undersold his skill game, even though it was hidden a lot at Louisville. Like he wasn't a good, sh he wasn't a good finisher off of one foot. He's not that explosive off one, but he's ridiculously explosive off two. So that kind of delineation, we were talking about like a dribble drive guy. How good is his vision on the move? He could run pick and roll and like split, like split the bigs and stuff like that. But I don't really know if anybody saw an actual like legitimate full-time point guard. And I'm not saying he is that yet, but he's definitely flashed there. And he's against someone who is initiating their offense a lot because, you know, Roddy Hood's been out. They need his scoring, and he's really stepped up in a big way. His shot mechanics were a lot better than his college numbers. And that's something I, I caught on to for sure, but I did not expect this. Yeah, there is – and you have to live with some of his – like he, he's just – always on this perpetual heat check and if you're the jazz uh, particularly this season you you live with like those i guess some would call them ill-advised pull-ups or uh, he kind of takes some of these long twos but he's actually shooting uh, almost 43 percent between 16 feet and the three-point line which is a, a pretty big for them uh, you you live with it because the offense has been both aesthetically and statistically better uh, when he's on the floor and he's really one of the few shot creators and and can be selfless playmakers on a team that really just doesn't have anyone like that after losing George Hill and Gordon Hayward. You you get aspects of that in Rodney Hill, who can create his own shots, but he's still not the best facilitator. Ricky Rubio can be a good facilitator, although his, I, I don't know, this reboot of Ricky Rubio where he looks more aggressive for a shot and then just shoots terribly. That's been interesting to watch as well. So having him there has been pretty big, and I... I think on defense, I don't know why, but I always forget that Donovan Mitchell is is six three, and he's like that. That seems like a perfect size for a point guard. He's just bigger than I have him pictured in my head, and I have no idea why that, that I can't um, get over <laughs> that. And he he's feisty there. And the one thing I've been kind of waiting to see, and maybe it's just because he spent. First of all, he's new to the NBA, and then half of that time has basically been spent uh, without Rudy Gobert. I've just been kind of waiting for them to develop more of that chemistry off pick and rolls. 
um, because it seems like Mitchell's kind of hesitant, and yes, he's learning the point guard ropes as well, so he is well ahead of the curve, but I, I thought it would just be a little bit easier for him to develop this consistent chemistry with one of the most devastating finishers in the league, but he's had some awkward passes, uh, hesitates a little too much when when they're in those situations, and that might be one of the biggest things he, he kind of needs to focus on moving forward. Definitely. And I think his original projection, I thought of him more as like a secondary ball handler type, maybe ideally like an Avery Bradley with maybe a little bit more kick on drives. I did not expect a point guard role. So he's acclimating to this for sure. He was not a full time point guard at Louisville. He kind of was a situational ball handler for them, played a lot off the ball as well. So this is definitely new for him. And it's not like he's super young. I mean, he's been 21 all year. So it's going to be an acclimation period, learning, you know, pocket pass timing and all of that. I think he might get there. He's really smart. And if he's learning from Rubio, that's really going to help him, kind of like Eric Bledsoe learned from Chris Paul. So that's an important dynamic. I always forget that Bledsoe and Paul play together. That's, uh, that's, that was fun to him. And I, I just looked this up while you were talking, too. Uh, the Gobert-Mitchell pairing has been even more anemic than I thought. The Jazz are scoring 96 points per 100 possessions in the 322 minutes they play together. But it's like you said, he wasn't supposed to be a point guard, and it makes it even easier to kind of live with these awkward pairings he might have as he's going through the motions and also when he does take some of those um, ill-advised shots or make those ill-advised decisions because he he's not this demonstrative minus on the defensive end. Like, it's not we're talking about Emmanuel Moutier in, in Denver or even sometimes it seemed like Jamal Murray last year, not really this year, that it was hard to keep him on the floor sometimes as you're grooming him as a point guard. This is a guy that can help you defensively semi-regularly, and that's gonna it makes it that much easier to let him go through those growing pains on the offensive end. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's going to be more of an acclimation period again. And we'll see how he you know, develops from year one to year two. That's what I'm looking at from a lot of these rookies, especially the, the lead ball handler types, is how much do they develop over the summer? Do they look like a more confident player in summer league? And I think that's when you want to see that spike. Year one for a lot of these guys, especially the primaries, are kind of throwaway years. You can still make observations. But as far as efficiency, I wouldn't read too much into that stuff. It's more about how much you develop quickly moving on to the years two and three. Andy, my co-host, is loves to say that he throws efficiency out the window for like the first two years of a player's career. Um, and I, I also I like your point there. And before I ask you about your your number four rookie, I, I guess so. You think there's like real value in them getting because that summer leading into their sophomore season is is almost like their first full summer to focus on basketball, just because of everything that happens after the draft. Exactly. I think that's exactly right. There's not a lot of distraction. You're now you're part of the regiment as far as eating right. You're on the weight training, strength and conditioning program. And it's really all about basketball, or at least you get to find out who is all about basketball and who isn't if you don't already know. So that's like the really that's when you put the time in, you know, on the court and you have that comfort now, because I think the first year is just acclimating to the NBA speed of the game, especially for decision makers. It's just really hard to do that when you're 19 or 20. I, yeah, I, I agree with you there. And uh, from coming from someone like you who says that it's super important, I'm just going to even believe in it even more than I did before. Um, who do you have as your number four rookie right now? This is really where it drops off. I don't really have a good answer to this. I don't think there's a concrete. You could you could go many different ways. Cal Kuzma has been productive offensively in his role. I think what he's given L.A. as a scoring type who can shoot a little bit off motion can play make on the move really great at that what they call the catch and go or the go and catch where you attack closeouts quickly ridiculous finishing touch around the rim i think offensively you can make a case for him in this spot what do you think i probably would go og ananobi here uh kyle kuz him and i think you're right this is where it gets super tough and, and kuzma's been fantastic on offense and 
uh, while the crowd of Kuzma is going to be worlds better than Brandon Ingram has kind of toned it down. Like he's just, he's so good offensively already. I just really, I'm just a sucker for what Ananobi's done for Toronto's defense. The the starting lineup, which has been a sieve for most of this year, even sometimes when Ananobi's on the floor, I might add, it's kind of stabilized, um, or at least it did before that kind of nightmarish road trip that they just had uh, or over those past couple games. And I, I'm not a big fan of the Ibaka Valanciunas front court, mostly because while I like Ibaka and thinks that he has perfected his role, he's just not as versatile or good defensively as he's always gotten credit for. And that makes for such an awkward pairing with Valanciunas and Ananobi, not single-handedly, obviously, but he's just helped stabilize that so much because you can put him on fours, and it's easier to stash those guys. And I know a lot of people aren't high in his pick-and-roll defense, but he's been surviving in space, at least, uh, quite well for a rookie. And this is a guy that, at least, I wasn't under the impression that he was going to play to start the season. Not even because the Raptors wouldn't use him, but because I didn't think he was going to be healthy. He wasn't ready to go when they started training camp. And then Norman Powell goes down. He's in the starting lineup and it, it he just he hasn't given up that slot. So it's he's maybe it's because I'm more caught off guard by him because we saw what Kuzma was doing offensively in the summer league. But I, I think I would have to put him at number four. I think that's entirely fair. He was in the conversation for me. OG Ananobi plus Jordan Bell. I think those guys have just stood out more short term than anybody else. I really like OG. And he's shown proclivity for like handling the ball. Like he had a hesitation move the other night on a, a dribble attack. That was not his game in college. Like he couldn't really dribble unless it was like a very obvious straight line situation. So his development fluidity wise with the ball is really, really interesting to me. He shot the three well enough. And defensively, I'm really, really high on him. I thought he had just rare physical traits he's really really good on ball can be a potential stopper in those situations I, I like him more long term than I like even Kuzma and I always had I think I had OG as a top nine prospect in the draft so really nice to see him fall to a good situation and then Jordan Bell would be the other guy for me but he's really a situational kind of player but he's someone who's going to be really really valuable in some settings when he can you know survive without getting bullied too much he on that team with all that spacing his playmaking on short rolls his activity level is just through the roof so I've been really impressed with him yeah so I would have uh I'm assuming so it was Kuzma was four for you and then you had would you have Ananobi at five and or like uh, Bell would be six, or that like those are just interchangeable for you at this point. Honestly, all of them are interchangeable. <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair to say. And so, uh, with Jordan Bell, the Warriors are probably one of the teams that I don't even know how to put this without probably inciting anger. I've I've watched them, but I'll always do other stuff when I watch them because I feel like I just don't have anything to learn from them anymore. But anytime I see Jordan Bell on the floor. Uh, just a couple of things that have stood out to me. And again, this is based off, one, he's played small samples, and two, me really locking in on the Warriors this year has been a relatively small sample. Like you said, the passes, I was a little bit surprised what he was doing on the move with those. That's not, you know, I, I don't even, I guess it's just contagious when you're, I don't, I don't even know that people were talking about that um, when everyone was up in arms that they got him uh, by buying that pick from the Chicago Bulls, which, nice job, Chicago. Um uh, and then the other thing is like he's kind of, he's like a good cutter already, and it already seems like he's just fitting into this system. And it's become again in those small samples I've seen like really like this team got this guy who uh, by next year or the year after couldn't you just basically see him starting at center for them? Yeah, I mean in certain matchups he's going to be able to. I'm not sure if he can full time just with the size, all that passing and cutting and intelligence. That was all there. I had him as a top 17 prospect in the class because he was literally oh, an awesome basketball player in Oregon. He just 
didn't he just lacks the physical tools, right? If you put him with conventional center size, he would have been a top five pick probably. Like he's really, really smart, can pass. He's he's a dynamic leaper. He's quick off the floor on lob catches. He just plays. He just frankly plays his ass off on the court. And he's in an again, he's in an optimal setting. I had Golden State as the best fit for him pre-draft because it was just playing with a bunch of shooters and he could play that energy role. And that's what he's cut out to do. I'm not I don't think he's gonna be a top five prospect from this class long term. I think there's a lot of guys that have more upside. But just as far as plug and play ability, he was always gonna be this, especially in this system. But yeah, I think maybe to the productivity level that he has put up in those minutes, you might be a little bit surprised. And I just I like I don't I, even his defense like he just blocks so many shots for a guy who's six nine I just I don't even it like Draymond Green isn't even a guy that you look at and say like like he's a great defender but he's not gonna block like these just like all these shots and yet Jordan Bell has a nickname Swatter Boy which is actually a good nickname better than Eraser that's not very creative at all <laughs> um, but I he just I, I'm I'm incredibly impressed and. I don't know how much this means because this comes from someone who basically crams all his draft prospect scouting into like an eight-week period leading up to the draft since I'm so immersed in the NBA. But I just – I that you had him at 17 on your big board. That's absolutely incredible to me. And then it's even more absurd, unfair, whatever, that the Warriors got him in the second round. Yeah, I mean they're just really good. They're one of the teams that's really good about finding traits and skill sets that are valuable in, in their system and in their scheme and then maximizing those. So he kind of just projected as that kind of guy. I think he's going to be a productive player long term. I was kind of surprised that they didn't. They only signed him to a two-year minimum deal instead of keeping enough uh, space. They signed Nick Young for the full mid-level, so they can only use that uh, minimum exception for Jordan Bell. So now he's a, he's a restricted free agent after two years. I kind of thought they'd try to get him on a three- to four-year deal. So that, that might end up hurting them a little bit if you can't hurt the Warriors, which is – I don't know. I don't even know if that's possible. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I guess, you know, financially, so if he's going to be a restricted free agent when we're talking about contracts for Draymond Green and Clay Thompson, like that's a, you know, th those are all going to be tough, tough pills to swallow all at once. Uh, before, before we kind of jump to the sophomores, is there any just couple other rookies that you want to name just as kind of surprised you, like kind of on the peripherals that uh, don't make you a no? We did top six, so that make that like top six cut. Yeah, I mean. I think Lonzo has been better than people give him credit for. I think everybody wants to fixate on the shooting, which has been dreadful. But I think outside of that, he's largely been what I thought he would be, like a pretty good team defender. He gets a lot of blocks and steals. He's got a high IQ as far as defending on the weak side. Luke Walton is finally playing him the right way, I think. He started the season playing him at the point of attack where he has those agility issues. And now he's playing more as like a weak side decision maker where he can rebound and stuff. So if the shooting comes around, which the confidence issues have been notable, and I'm kind of worried about that. I still think he's been, you know, he's been productive enough and he gets killed because of his rep and his dad and all that. But I think people have to kind of parse between that and actually see what he's contributing. And a lot of the other point guards, I mean, I'm really high on Dennis Smith. I had him number two on my board. So I see a lot of long-term potential. It's just going to take a while with guys like that. I'm not as high on Fox. Hopefully Monk will get to run point guard more. We'll see. He's kind of been in and out of the rotation recently with Michael Carter-Williams back. Those are kind of more like big-name guys. I, I don't know too much more about sleeper types. I think like Bell, maybe John Collins, his productivity playing in Atlanta as like the five, like a pick-and-roll, spread pick-and-roll five finisher type. He's been kind of impressive to me. I wasn't that high on him. John Collins' reload time when he's jumping back up, it doesn't even seem like he hits the ground. Like it just seems like he's yep. double-kicking in midair. I don't – I don't. I've been absolutely astounded by that. And then Lonzo, for me, um, I've really liked his his defense, and he breaks up 
so many plays from like behind them, and it's not necessarily because he's getting beat. Like it's just because he seems super comfortable doing that, and I, I find that incredible for a rookie. And it seems like his IQ there is, you know, you deal with the shooting woes if you kind of have uh, him him doing that. So I haven't. I don't know if you could say. I wouldn't say I've been impressed by him, but I think he, people have been too hard on him, which is funny because I wasn't exactly like super high on him coming to the draft, and I found myself caping for him in like a bunch of articles over the past few weeks. So it's just, and if you look, I'm not a fan uh, uh, like of raw totals, but there are only six players who have as many blocks and steals as him this season: Cousins, Attentacumpo, Draymond Green, LeBron James, Andre Drummond, and Victor Oladipo. Like that's just. You know, I, at raw totals are raw totals. I get it. But that's just, to me, is just, I, I, I don't know. I find that super incredible, particularly for the only guard outside of Oladipo uh, on that list. I agree. And I'm the same as you. I spent last year kind of trying to <laughs> offset all the hype he was receiving. I mean, he was getting, like, Derek Rose combined with Jason Kidd comparisons. And it was just outlandish. And I was basically writing all year last year about how that wasn't true. And so to see that manifest is like somewhat rewarding, but I also believe in a spot up shot a lot more than what has um, transpired so far this year. I don't think that that is translated nearly to the level I thought, but I still think he's a productive player and, you know, he's starting to get used the right way. I think he's a two guard in the half court offensively. Brendan Ingram's initiating their offense more in pick and roll because he can get to the rim. Lonzo has always struggled with his handle in, in that capacity. So hopefully Luke kind of starts to optimize him and you see the rewards of that. Speaking of Brandon Ingram, who I'm a huge fan of, um, I'm wondering who you have at the top of your sophomore ladder for this season. Yeah, I, I just, I mean, you could make an argument for Jalen Brown again because of the system he plays in and, and how he contributes to winning basketball. I just think that Ingram, I'm going to kind of combine prospect analysis with this too. I just think that Ingram's the clear better talent, in my opinion, and we've seen improvements in his game. He's driving to the hoop much more. I think last time I checked on NBA.com, he was he increased his driving by like seven a game, about 10 percentage points higher, finishing around the rim. We're starting to see him utilize his length at the basket. He's got better core strength this year, I think, able to absorb contact a little bit better. I think his field game is better than he gets credit for. Drop-off passes, some skip passes. It's got to come along. He has a lot of margin for error defensively with his length so I'm a, I'm a big Brandon Ingram guy I know he got killed after his rookie year for the stats I actually thought he improved as, as the season went on and he started this season as a total black hole which is really disconcerting so I was worried for about five to six games and he's kind of gone back to that you know late last season iteration of himself as a passer but he's now he's finishing better so I'm I think I have Brandon Ingram there um would you I guess this is I probably should have prefaced with this question are we do we exclude Joel Embiid from the sophomore conversation because he's a fourth year sophomore yeah, I think MB's on a different planet than everybody else anyway. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm all for that. And, you know, I think I would put Brandon Ingram there too, and Jalen Brown would be my consideration right after him. But Brandon Ingram's passing has got gotten a lot better. I I don't have any, like, rational explanation for this. I trust Brandon Ingram's jump shot a little bit more. He's shooting fewer threes per game, and his corner three-point percentage this year has been absolutely terrible he hit that was one of the encouraging kind of touchstones for him last year was he shot 36.4 percent on quarter threes and he's currently shooting 15.4 percent on quarter threes and his three-point attempt rate has plummeted like the lakers as a whole they're, they're such a weird uh team when it comes to three-pointers but i trust it a little bit more we saw him hit those big shots i think it was was, was that the philly game where he or where did he hit the game winner um yes that was philly yeah that was philly so like it's just i'm his motion looks fine and even last year and it's still happening this year like he gets 
anywhere he wants to go. We can talk about the need for him to be stronger so that he can kind of finish um, around the rim at an even higher level. Although if you're going to shoot 63.1% inside three feet, you know, that's fine. But he's still getting to his spots. Like it'll be if he wants to finish at a higher clip through more contact. But it's also like you said, I think he's shooting better than 50% on drives too last time. I checked with all that uptick in volume. So uh, that's why he's been so good to me. And then I'm, I'm just big on his defense. He's one of the reasons why the Lakers seemed like they were just such a surprising defensive team. They've kind of normalized and regressed um, a little bit since that scintillating start, but I'm just all in on him. And and he looks so much more comfortable as a playmaker too, just out of the pick and roll. And, and Luke Walton, I, I think, as you said, when you were talking about how you believe he improved towards the end of last year, I think you saw it, too, even when the numbers weren't there. He just looked more comfortable then, and we've seen all that kind of carry over. And while it's hard to take what coaches and organizations and team shills say at face value, like everything you've heard from the Lakers or anyone close to the Lakers or anyone around the Lakers is that he just works his ass off. And so I'm, I'm just a huge believer in him. Yeah, I am too. And I I maintain that throughout. I didn't really see – like he got ridiculous comparisons too. I mean people thought he was the next Duran, of course, because anytime anybody's 6'9 with a 7'3 plus wingspan, they can shoot a little bit. They're automatically Durant. He's not that level of fluid athlete. He has the long strides. Like you were noting, he can get to his spots even though he's not the best first step. I think long term, if he wants to be the player that we think he can be and kind of be that primary scoring wing, I think he's going to need the threat of his jump shot. And it's coming along a little bit. He's still not comfortable – off the dribble, he had a lot of really bad misses off the bounce against New York that I saw the other night. So I think that's a work in progress. That might be a multi-year thing. He might be a second contract kind of dynamic player by then if he develops. But he definitely has the IQ foundation that I look for that a guy like Wiggins doesn't have, in my opinion. And probably one of the other – this, I guess, just blends with his jumper issues. But for someone who's not too shabby at getting to the foul line when he's being used as the pick-and-roll ball handler – uh, he leads the Lakers in free throw frequency in those situations, but part of that might also be because teams are willing to foul him since his free throw percentage just isn't there. Uh, I, I kind of thought this would maybe be the year that, hey, again, he's improved it by more than five percentage points, but I thought for some reason he was going to shoot um, better than 70% from the foul line this year, and, and that's something you're going to want him to improve upon if the goal is to get him to the foul line. But he was also, he shot 68, what was it, like 68, 68 point something percent um, in his lone season at Duke. So um, I'm just interested to see that progression there, and I'm curious what you think. Yeah, that was the issue with him. He's kind of one of those dreaded split guys that we see with percentage shooting. So he was really good from three. I think it was like 42% from college three, and then he was 67, 68% from the line. We saw that with Justice Winslow as well. That's kind of a red flag as far as translatability for your shot. I'm not a huge guy. I don't put all my emphasis on free throw shooting. I think you got to look at mechanics. You got to look at situation, shot diversity, off screens, off the dribble. But Ingram definitely didn't profile as a dynamic shooter. So that's something to keep in mind with this. He's not like a, a surefire bet to shoot well. I think it's going to take some modification. It's going to take some work, but he is a hard worker, so hopefully he develops. And who would you have at number two, even though I'm pretty sure I could guess at this point? Yeah, I think it's got to be Jalen Brown. I mean, I, I notoriously haven't been as high on him. I had him still in the lottery as far as in 2016. That was just a weird, weird draft. But he's really been optimized as like this off-ball kind of corner three-point shooter. He's been effective there. Transition, his athleticism just overwhelms guys in open space. He can attack closeouts, explode with like one dribble getting to the rim, even though he's never been a good finisher, which is just super weird. He just doesn't have great body control and touch. So unless it's a dunk, I think he misses a lot of layups. But he competes defensively. He really plays hard. And when you're that kind of athlete, 
I think his defense is probably a little overrated by the consensus. I think a lot of people think he's a lockdown defender. I think on ball, he can have those stints. I still worry about him a little bit off ball decision making, but he's someone again, athletically who can leap out of position on a closeout. And then his second jump will be almost enough to block the guy's shot who tries to take a sidestep shot. So he's a freak athlete. I, I definitely learned from that mistake of putting him too low. Some guys, if they just have the requisite amount of coordination and just dynamic athleticism with that kind of frame on the wing, they can thrive. And Brad Stevens, again, is doing wonders. I have a two-part question for you then with him. Uh, first, defense, uh, you talked about him possibly being a little bit overrated there. Do you think there's something to be said for how much easier he kind of makes it to integrate a guy like Jason Tatum? Because now you have this six-seven guy who yeah, we can – I know position's outdated, like whatever, but he can go on guards and swingmen um, in addition to being on like those like heavier wings. And then two – this is one of those situations for me where the eye test doesn't line up with the stats in the complete opposite way, where we're talking about Brandon Ingram. You like his form. I think he just gets everywhere he wants to go and I'm more confident in his jumper going down. I do not like watching Jalen Brown post-ups, and yet he's been, as far as post-ups go, fairly efficient, and he just gets to the foul line a ton in them. And I was looking before we started – um, among the 50-plus players who have used at least 34 post-up possessions this year, he leads them in free-throw frequency. So it's just, I don't, it's just, it doesn't, I don't like watching them, but I guess they're working in super small doses. Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. And it's usually in advantageous matchups when he's playing the two. We saw that against the Knicks. When he gets like Courtney Lee on the inside, the ball goes there. They run a flex cut action and he gets the ball and he either draws a foul or he explodes right over the top. So he's really efficient because he's being utilize in a specific way like his splits his self-creation splits are not high like as far as pick and roll isolation even post-ups I mean I think that might be as high as I'm not sure I haven't looked at it recently but I think that's a testament to Brad Stevens and just to Jalen Brown's physical gifts when he has a mismatch he can just overwhelm guys as far as how he helps defensively integrate Tatum I'm of the mindset that if you play a switching kind of scheme, it helps p players stay focused when they do so. So I think just overall, if you can switch floppy actions off ball, that really helps like keep players engaged. And obviously Tatum and Brown can both do that to an extent. And Brown, of course, is taking the opponent's best wing, to wing offensive player on a nightly basis. So that's obviously going to help Tatum some be more of a team defender where his lack of he, – he's a little bit uh, tight in the hips, Tatum is – I think he's been better just effort-wise than I expected this year, but I'm not sure if he's going to emerge in any kind of like on-ball lockdown guy. And Jalen obviously has the speed and the athleticism to compensate for that. Um, who do you have at number three? Yeah, this is again where it kind of drops off. I, I think you can make a case for a lot of different guys. I'll, I'll tell you who I like the most long-term, and I'll let you answer who's been the best this year. I like, I still like Bender the most long-term as a the, the number four guy. I know that he wow. hasn't produced. And he's probably going to be a second contract guy because he's in a bad situation. I mean, last year he played, what, 43 games. He played some at the three. And this year, I mean, the Suns have just kind of been a disaster all around. But I do believe in the intellect. I think his defense sticks out on that team, especially as really the only guy making rotations. And his shooting has come up. I mean, he has to shoot to have offensive value because even when he does shoot, he doesn't have a ton of offensive value unless you know he can put the ball on the floor more and he improves his handle. But I like him the most. He's kind of like a smart two-way kind of four or five swing kind of big. But I, I do realize that he has not been that player thus far. <laughs> I still – I would not have put him at number three. I still believe in him though too. And ever since Jay Triano took over, at least at the beginning, like he had some kind of spunky minutes. 
And um, that makes me think that if you could give him more playing time and even more playing time, I know, I think, I believe he's been playing a, a little bit more last time I checked compared to how he was being used uh, in that Hurl Watson slot, slop fest. But I, I'm just curious, like, when is he going to get free reign or when's he going to really have that unbridled chance to develop? I mean, 608 minutes, like, again, over 30 games, it's great. It's just you have Tyson Chandler still there. You have Alex Lynn. He still kind of factors in. Alan Williams isn't even healthy right now. You have Marquise Chris, who I'm becoming increasingly low on, even though he's been a little bit plucky um, facing up ever since Devin Booker went down. I, don't, I wouldn't say efficient, but just to look at him actually like try and, and do stuff like that. So I am still a Dragon Bender believer, uh, but I'm also very impressed that you put him at number three. <laughs> yeah, I think if you – I was just really high on him coming into the draft, and he was a multi-year guy. So it's kind of – it's hard to jump ship. I agree the situation has not been ideal, and it's definitely fair to move him down. I just don't know of a lot of guys I like a lot in this class as far as, you know – vaulting them up so high. I just don't, that was the issue with that class overall is like the, the cop couple guys like Ingram Simmons, they were obviously going to be, you know, high level players. Probably Simmons looked like the star of the class. But after that, it was kind of like Brown's athleticism. You can go Jamal Murray, who I'm sure you'll probably bring up, but I just don't like a lot of the other guys in this class. Now, if we're talking long-term, um, I think there's like a lot of wiggle room and they would probably be Jamal Murray for me here, but okay. I'm, I'm looking at just this season and I, I have to go with DeMantis Sabonis. I just I can't talk myself out of him. He's every time I see him like play, it, I just feel like he's seven of seven or some seven of nine from the field or something <laughs> ridiculous. And I think what we're really seeing, I want to clarify by saying I like Russell Westbrook, but it's just so hard to to integrate like any kind of offensive system with him there. And Zabonis is like even more so proof of that than Oladipo in many respects, because now all of a sudden he's getting a bunch of these cuts in Indiana and he's just, he's averaging one point, uh, one, six points per possession on them, which isn't incredibly efficient when you're looking at cuts specifically, but he's still shooting 56.7% on those plays, which you can live with. He's uh, done a better job shooting the three ball and he, he just looks super comfortable if we're talking long term, one of the things that might push him out of this spot uh, relative to this class would probably be the fact that his best position is center. And I don't really know what Indiana is going to do there because you have Miles Turner, who's been weird uh, this year. And we also can't forget, like, how does TJ Lee factor in? Like, how are they going to do this front court long term? So, so that might be why I'd be hesitant to if we're, you know, this season, I'd have him at number three right now, but looking ahead, I don't know that he could stay here. So I'm curious how you kind of feel about him. I mean, his current value for sure. I mean, he's just been in a much more optimal role for him being used more as the pick and roll kind of feeder. So in dribble handoffs, he's got really good hips, so he'll make himself available, flip really quickly. He's a good passer, good toucher on the basket. I mean, Oklahoma City, he was basically a stretch four type, and that's not really his game. Like he can shoot a little bit, but he his projection was pretty much contingent on being able to extract his playmaking. So I, I like him, but he's a trade-off guy for me long-term. Like if you play him at the five, you're going to lose rim protection. There are certain matchups. I watched him play the Kings earlier this year and he's going to eviscerate that front line because they have nobody that can really make him pay. And you know, they can't get to the rim, the Kings, because they have such bad spacing. So matchups like that, you can get away with him at the five and just roast the other team offensively. But I don't know how much value that really has as a situational big. But this year, for sure. I mean, I ranked a lot of these guys by long term just because I don't really know like what the current value of a lot of guys is here. But I'm going to rely on your list for four and five just to kind of respond to it. Um, all right. So then we'll go that route. Um, and 
I, so I would go Jamal Murray at number four, and I was tempted to put him at number three. Uh, he okay. he looks uh, even though some of his shooting slashes are off, like in the macro view for this uh, season overall, you don't want him shooting thirty three point one percent for the entire year from downtown. But it, he's hitting some more of his shots there um, in, in recent games. I think over his like it's like his last seven or is it eight games or is it six games? He's shooting fifty two point six percent from three on five point four three point attempts per game. Uh, his his efficiency at the foul line has been absurd. Uh, two of the things that I've really liked about him, though, and is what I think contributed, even though all the stats didn't show it, to kind of Denver's defensive uptick to almost league average before Paul Millsap went out, he's just better on that end of the floor. And this is probably comes, like you said earlier, when we're looking at the first and second years of players, you have to throw the numbers out the window and kind of watch for feel. It seems like he has a better defensive feel. And then the final thing was, this is another guy who wasn't, who isn't at least supposed to be this point guard, and he just looks more comfortable there as well. I think you can argue now that the Nuggets' biggest need is another wing as opposed to this other playmaker because Jamal Murray's looked like he's kind of steadied the ship, even in certain lineups when Jokic isn't on the floor like he hasn't been for the last six or seven games. Um, So I've really liked that. He's a little bit more under control in the pick and roll, and he was relative to how the other Nuggets were doing last year in the pick and roll. With the exception of Wilson Chandler, he just seemed to be the most under control guy in those situations too. So even while he's still not the most efficient player, again, those last seven games notwithstanding where he's just been absolutely off the charts, like I think you live with him turning the ball over on 15% of his pick and roll possessions at this point. I I think you live with the semi-low free free throw frequency because you know he's shooting 45.5% in those situations. It just looks like he's a more aware passer in those plays as well. So his IQ just seems to be mushrooming right before our eyes. And and if we were talking long-term, since I guess we should balance those two conversations, I would definitely put him ahead of Sabonis. I might even consider putting him um, ahead of Brown as well. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, he definitely has his fans. He always has. I'm a little lower on his point guard projection just because I've never really seen his ability to separate against top level athletes I think he's big enough frame wise and he has feel for sure like he can play and pick and roll I've always been kind of I'm somewhat optimistic about his passing I think he can definitely make the reads he's a smart player it's just he has that low release on his pull up and so getting to that is a little harder for him I think the shooting's going to come around he's always been he was an excellent off-screen shooter at Kentucky that's how he was primarily used they tried to use him on ball to start the year and didn't go that well. So they moved him off ball and then he started just dominating. He could really set quickly off screens and with Jokic, he's in an optimal situation because he can play off the ball a lot because Jokic is kind of their de facto point guard running dribble handoffs and stuff on the top of the key. So it comes down to defense. I do agree with you. I think he's made improvements. I still don't think he's that good. Um, He tries hard though. That's the thing I, I like most about him is he puts in the effort and he will, you know, try to apply back pressure with his length and, you know, his general frame. So there are things to be optimistic about. I'm a little worried about him getting overpaid. <laughs> I don't know if you like, – there's a lot of factors to – like that's just something that I think about with top-level prospects, like a Wiggins type. I, I don't want to end up with paying a max contract to someone like that who isn't really that valuable, even though I, I get the process of you kind of have to in certain situations. But he's the guy out of this class. I thought maybe Chris was at one point, but Chris is just disappointed too much to fit this role. But I don't like pay- – overpaying guys on second contracts that I'm not sure are going to be that good, but I've always been lower on Murray than probably the consensus is. 
Um, fun fact about Marquis Chris, very quickly, I spoke with him right after he was drafted, and if you tweet about him, chances are he will see it because he will search his name on Twitter, and I just found that, you know, like, I, I just found that, inter- one, like, it, admitting that, I was like, you know, that I, I respect you for admitting that you do that, because I, you know what, if I was a high-profile athlete, I'd probably do the same exact thing. Um, so number five, and I'm, I feel like my opinion on number five is, one, rooted solely in this season, and two, because I'm just so shocked by what's happening, Chris Dunn in Chicago. I don't know that I saw him. I'm not right, 37% from three. Like, yes, that was, I didn't, I honestly, if you, there's no way I would have predicted that after watching him last year. Uh, he looks like he's done a much better job as a passer. He's still kind of feisty um, on the defensive end, and he's playing this higher usage role. So, yes, his counting stats were going to go up, but he just seems to be making smarter plays. And even the bigger thing, like, uh, we could talk about the game against the Jazz the other night where he just, like, he hits that game winner. Like, this isn't a guy that I thought was going to – I'm not going to say develop because he's not there yet, but I didn't think he'd have the confidence this year to just take, like, a step-back J in crunch time. You could argue whether or not he was going to have the freedom to do it because the Bulls are just on paper so bad, although Nikola Mirotic is apparently spurring a championship-level turnaround. But uh, <laughs> it's just – he's I think he's just caught me so off guard that I have to put him – at number five, and it's not easy. He's not taking a ton of threes overall. One point three attempts, excuse me, per thirty-six minutes, which is you know whatever. It's still more than last year, and this Bulls team is was at one point one of the worst offensive teams when you looked at adjusted rating across league history. So to have that mark go up and to look a little bit more comfortable in this role as a pri- primary ball handler when you weren't anything close to that with Minnesota last year. Uh, still needs to figure out how to finish uh, around the rim a little bit better, but he's just, I, I, again, I think it's because I just didn't see anything like this coming. I really like that call, honestly. I think that people sold too much stock too quickly on Dunn when there were clear positive traits. His defense, his point of attack defense, he's probably one of the best defensive guards I've seen come across the league in like, what, five, six years. He's so quick, long, he has the athleticism. If you unleash him in that regard, you're going to have defensive value. It just comes down to what role you want him to play on offense. I'm still a little dubious that he's an actual point guard. Uh, he can make open threes. Like I've, I've been kind of in the he's a two-guard camp for a, a little bit just because I think like he can make an unguarded three like at a high enough rate. The last time I checked this year, he was like, I think he was over 50% on those. I don't know if, I don't know if he's held on to that percentage. But when you talk about him as a point guard, the decision-making has always been the issue He's got a looser handle than you'd think, too. He loses the ball in traffic sometimes. You noted the finishing. I'm not sold on him there either. So if he can become a point guard, obviously he becomes a really dynamic player potentially because you know he's going to bring two-way value. It's just you really entrust your offense to a guy who is older than people think he is. And he hasn't really developed that intellect that I think a lot of point guards have to have. So I agree. I, I really like that you brought him up because, again, I think people have dismissed him entirely, and he's been better than people expected this year. Well, and, and I mean, you made that point. People have been – you want to call it Andre Robersing him or Marcus Smarting him. You know, 45 of his 54 three-point attempts have just been wide open, and he's shooting. He he has regressed. He's 37.8% on those looks. Okay. But, you know, if Andre Robertson was hitting down those looks, he probably would have gotten 15 to $18 million in free agency last year, even amid that depressed <laughs> market. So, like, that's that's kind of important. Um, Two sophomores I did want to sh- shout out and see if we could get your quick thoughts on, though, were sure. uh, Buddy Heald, who is shooting or what, like, when he's off, the, comes off the bench, he's just so much better. And I kind of credit the Kings for recognizing that he's shooting forty-seven point two percent from three. And another Kings guy, Willie Cauley Stein, was just like, 
I I don't even know. It I'm I hate watching when him and Zach Randolph were playing together, but it's forced him to just do some things that I don't think anyone expected him to do at the NBA level. Yeah, you can kind of see him chasing around like these mobile guys on the defensive end, but I don't think anyone kind of saw him putting the ball on the floor ever. Uh, he He's shooting okay um, on those, I call them junky twos, because you don't necessarily want to see people take them, but if you're going to have Willie Cauley-Stein taking them, then then yeah, whatever, if, the, if those are going to go in a semi-high clip. So I've been incredibly low on the Kings and how they're kind of going about their rebuild at the moment, um, even though Yoger has, Jaeger, excuse me, has really kind of started to favor De'Aaron Fox, um, and Frank Mason and Buddy Heald over George Hill. I, I haven't been a fan of the whole team dynamic. It's just so weird. But Willie Cauley-Stein, I probably would have thrown him um, into the top five if, if Dunn didn't like really just, just catch me so off guard this year. Yeah, he's kind of like the all-time tease for me. Like He'll do things, and you'll be like, oh, yeah, I, that's pretty incredible. But it'll be so inconsistent. Like, Do you really want him playmaking? He's, he's flashed this before, even in summer league. Like he'll he'll like put the ball on the floor a little bit. He'll make an, an interesting pass. He'll make a mid-range jump shot. It's just for me, it comes down to he doesn't finish plays defensively, especially like he's super quick laterally. He has all the physical gifts you'd want out like on defending on the perimeter. He'll slide twice and then he won't slide that third time. He'll allow a layup. It's just hiccups like that. I'm not sure if he's ever going to overcome that. You want to play him as like a spread pick and roll dive guy because his catch radius and his leaping ability is insane. But I, I don't know. Is he really going to anchor a high-level defense? I, I think he's probably a little underrated at this point. But again, I think most of it is flash plays. And then Buddy Heald, I always saw kind of as a bench shooter. If he's going to shoot 47%, he's an NBA player. I watched him play against Oladipo a while back, and Oladipo was able to come across the entire like length of the court and still block his shot because it's a little, it's fast, but it's a little low. Uh, from spot-up situations, I think he's going to be fine. He's, he's an NBA player. I just don't know. Like you said, he's a bench guy. I don't see any kind of starter equity with him, but at least he's making shots. I thought that him as kind of the focal point of the DeMarcus Cousins trade was kind of ridiculous, but that's uh, just, I was I, never that high on him. I think you could remove the kind of from it, and you'll still be fine. <laughs> um, any really quick, was there any? Have there been any sophomores you're kind of disappointed in this year or were hoping to see a, a little bit more from? I don't know about disappointed. I Due to his situation, I was kind of high on Wancho his rookie year. He's he's just been kind of he had the illness, so he hasn't played as much. I'm kind of higher on him based on what I saw in summer league in his rookie year, being a bouncy guy on the glass, kind of a stretch four type who can you know make a quick release shot. So I want to see more of him. The Atlanta guys, I think that Prince has been pretty solid. I don't know if he's made it enough of a playmaking jump that I expected. He's shooting a lot off the dribble, and that's not really his game. But I guess it's good to see him trying to fill that role in case he can developmentally long-term because they didn't really have anybody else on the wing. I'm a big Bembry guy. Um, and he's made some kind of shooting improvements, but he's still not shooting the ball well from three. But mechanically, they have a really awesome shooting coach. So hopefully, I think in time, I was high on his intellect coming into the draft. So maybe they can iron out that mechanical release. And I think his playmaking secondarily is pretty underrated. Yeah, that's what I was actually going to say about Bembry. I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, he did have his like final two years at St. Joseph's. He had a ton of assists. But I didn't see him kind of being... He's probably been, I think you can make the case, their second or third best playmaker um, behind Dennis Schroeder. So I don't, Bembry's impressed me there. Torian Prince, um, I love him too. Uh, some rookies that just like RIP to their stocks, mostly because of their teams. Uh, Scal, he was on an end of, I'm bringing up so many kings. I don't know what's going on here, but uh, he 
like he's vacillating between the D League and it's now Cauley Stein is like the, the better big and it doesn't help that you have Kufos and Randolph getting minutes as well. So he'll be interesting to watch long term. Willie Hernan Gomez all of a sudden can't play for the Knicks because I I don't know. I guess you have to they have too many bigs, obviously, but that's still like even when you had Kristaps Porzingis injured and he wasn't getting minutes, kind of blasphemous. Uh, you said Juan Hernan Gomez. I hate that the Nuggets still kind of like they have to use him as like this wing, which works offensively. I'm not a fan of it on defense. Yeah. Uh, I wish Wayne Selden was healthy this year because he was super fun um, to watch. Malcolm Brogdon has been a little bit disappointing, and I don't even know if that's just because maybe he's coming back down to earth because it's like he's not his stats aren't that much worse. But I've I've almost become like a little bit lower on him as a defender this year, and I was so high on him. So those are just like guys. And even the other one I was hoping to see because the Nuggets are so thin on wings was Malik Beasley. They must really not believe in him if he can't get like he couldn't get minutes when Chandler was injured and Jokic and Millsap were out. Like it's just he just can't get minutes. Yeah, I think I'll add one more guy, Marquise Chris. Just overall, I was like going into summer league. Watching him in summer league was just kind of depressing. Honestly, there was just no development. I think he's he was a football player growing up. He's not a natural basketball player. I'm not sure if that's ever going to turn around. Just learning that kind of muscle memory, instincts wise. He's obviously a freak athlete. And I think he's probably back down to a better weight. He, I think he added too much strength in the off season, lifted too much weights, and it, it kind of seemed like it was lagging him down as an athlete and that's really where he makes his bread and butter but if he's not going to shoot i don't know if he's ever going to be a dynamic enough defender so i I was never really that high on chris but i'm just yeah i'm more tentatively like probably tentatively selling at this point just because of the situation too i I don't know what you think about him i he just i thought he would be like this really bouncy like small ball five and what's probably disappointed me and I'm not sure it's necessarily on him. It's like the Suns can't be this great pick-and-roll team because they just don't have the spacing. And But also when you when you kind of have all this freedom to experiment, I do want to see him kind of operate on face-ups more. And then probably the, the worst thing is he hasn't really made any strides on the defensive end. Like he can still be super kind of foul-happy, and I, I just thought he would be a little bit more switchable too. So I did like him um, coming in. Uh, coming out of the draft, excuse me, but I don't I don't know. He might fall into that category where you have to lament the situation a little bit, but at the same time, like he's been given some freedom at different stages with Phoenix, even if it's uh, inconsistent and, and the development just hasn't been there. Yeah, I, I echo all that. Um, another guy really quick is Thon Maker. I was going to say him too. <laughs> yeah, I just don't know, man. Like I think his reputation exceeds what he is on the court. People see this. I was watching a broadcast and this team thought that he was like some playmaking five. Uh, I think he has to shoot to have offensive value because he's going to take offense. He's going to take defensive value off the table as a rim protector or a rebounder. I mean, they really get killed with him on the glass. We saw Steven Adams really punk him earlier this season. It's just tough because that team needs defensive rebounding so bad with the honest at the four. And he's just not going to give that to him like physically right now. I mean, hopefully he develops. He has a workable frame. We'll see how much girth he can add, especially to his lower body. But I always thought the offensive upside was kind of being oversold. Um, can I admit something? I'm, Please. For, for him and even Jabari Parker a little bit, like it's kind of like taboo to bring them up in potential trades with the Bucks when you're talking about them going after DeAndre Jordan or before like they'd gotten Eric Bledsoe. Obviously, they got uh, Bledsoe for a song. It didn't. It cost them nothing. But, you know, I just – at this point when you've kind of seen what you've seen from him – I don't know that he should be viewed as this untouchable prospect anymore. There's all there's always going to be like a stretch of two or three games where you're like, okay, damn, yeah, he could be maybe close to a transcendent talent. And he had one of the most, I don't know if, I think it's one of my favorite performances I've just seen this season because it was so like 
oddly uneven, but it was that November 22nd win Milwaukee had um, in Phoenix where he had 16 points. He was a plus four. He grabbed eight rebounds, which is a big deal for him. Um, and he, he was getting to the foul line, and he fouled out. And it, so it was just like, I don't know. It was just so, and his minutes are going down. And I don't, I don't even try to make sense of like how Jason Kidd views anyone, especially in the front court. Look at how many times like John Henson's been in and out of his doghouse or Greg Monroe before he was traded. So I still have hope for him. Um, I do not have hope that I'll ever figure out how I'm going to pronounce his name though long term. Maker just like is so much easier, but I, I think he came out and said in an article that it's McCurr, and it just that sounds so unnatural, but. I'm going to make yeah, an effort I've, to call that. I've just always stuck with Maker. But, yeah, I mean, I've, I floated recently on Twitter that, you know, if you had a chance to get DeAndre and you had a, a suspicion that he's signed long-term, I would definitely part with Thon. I think that that's easily worth it. But a lot of Bucks fans fired back being like, no. But I think a lot of that was just the uncertainty of DeAndre next offseason wanting to re-sign in Milwaukee. Yeah, and, I mean, he's going to turn 30. That's, that's such a weird situation. Um, yeah. But, anyway, so – Moving on to the third years, which is um, – I'm just like there's just so many good or quote-unquote like transcendent uh, talents from this draft class too. Um, and I'm just curious. Uh, I'm probably just going to throw some names at you. Kristaps uh, Porzingis will start because it seems like he's been sensational. I predicted that he actually was not going to have a leap this year because I thought that – uh, one, losing Carmel Anthony would hurt him offensively a little bit, but that the Knicks still weren't going to feature him enough because you had Tim Hardaway Jr. They signed Michael Beasley, and I just thought he – and you had uh, Enos Cantor. I thought he was just going to lose all these touches. I've actually been – and as someone who loves Kristaps Porzingis, I've actually been surprised at how good he is and and how aware he is of just how, how tall he is. Like he just knows to rise and fire over these guys. He needs to recognize a little bit better when he has centers, real centers on him and can't do that. And, you know, I'm not a fan. He's shooting the lights out between 10 and 16 feet. Uh, and if you're going to hit those, yes, take them. But I'm not a fan of uh, those those shot attempts necessarily either. But did he, is this like a, a kind of jump that you saw from him or have you been surprised as well? No, I've been surprised. I mean, his rise as a self-creator shot maker type in those mid post situations was pivotal for him. I mean, before he was more of a pick and pop guy, he got bothered when you pressed up on him in the post. Like he wasn't that comfortable, like absorbing contact. And now he just doesn't need any airspace at all. Like he was playing against the Lakers the other night and Larry Nance, and he was just shooting right over him comfortably every single time. And, you know, if he does that, that was, I know that the shot quality isn't great in the post and the mid range, but that was something that he needed. He needed to bring that self creation aspect and not just be this kind of unicorn pick and pop guy. So, the fact that you could throw the ball to him now and get baskets is huge for New York. And I think that maybe Nilakina, a player like that who's super unselfish that actually looks for him, is not something he had in the past with like Derrick Rose types who would just try to force their own shots. Like a lot of the players look for him primarily. So he's getting more volume, but just the development that he's shown as just a general shot maker to pair with that rim protection on defense. I still think the perimeter defense is an issue just because nobody that big is going to ever move that well in space. It's just kind of physically impossible for most guys that aren't DeAndre Ayton. So he, he, yeah, so he has shown, (laughs) I mean, the two way ability has been there for him and and the shot making has been phenomenal. Um, I'm, I, I think I'm going to ask you to get me excited about DeAndre Ayton because I'm, I haven't paid so much attention to the draft, (laughs) but everyone talks about him and you saying that, uh, because that was one of my biggest knocks is like one, I don't think Kristaps is that bad in space, but two, you know, you're not, humans aren't supposed to be 
seven foot three inch spaghetti noodles. Like it's just you can't move. He moves fairly naturally. Like when the like you can sometimes you've seen in the past like these super tall guys like it just looks unnatural when they move. He doesn't have that. But when you have to go like laterally um, like against wings on defense, like it's just not going to be there. And I'm actually shocked that he's done as well as he has defensively uh, when he's playing power forward. He's a big part of the reason that. Uh, Enos Cantor has been essentially a plus rim protector this year, and you can say that he's had by far he's having the best defensive season of his career because that's not really you know standing up to anything. It's not even necessarily a compliment. But you know, Kristaps was contesting 7.8 shots at the rim last year. That is down this season by three to 4.8, and he's wow. still one of the most valuable rim protectors in the league when you look relative to the league average and the value saved. Like th- th- that, he's been this good. It's just, you know, because I'm, I'm a fan of him at the five. There's there's definitely offensive value there because we're seeing him shoot over guys, but uh, he's really impressed me there. And I think um, the bigger thing for him moving forward, or, or perhaps the biggest thing, is just passing better out of double teams. And he's never going to be that high assist guy because I, I think he's even now passing better out of double teams, but uh, players will make that second pass and that third pass, and he just won't get credit for them. Uh, but I, I think that's going to be huge for him moving forward uh, to recognize as well. But I've honestly, I probably shouldn't have been shocked, and people have already called me out on Twitter for being so low uh, on his uh, third year season and you know great that's fantastic and you brought up Frank Nielakina who maybe we should have talked about as like one of the rookies he I like him because one he has the uh, his jumper looks smooth on three-pointers even when they're not falling and if he's like if he could be I don't think his finishing around the rim is poor because he's a poor finisher I just think he's so indecisive but tying that to Kristaps those two just need to play more together like it's just they they've played 161 minutes to date and I know Neil Akeen has dealt with injuries I know Kristaps has too and I know Jared Jack has been good it's just it's not enough and the Knicks are hammering opponents by 16.6 points per 100 possessions when those two are on the court and I I just I I like to see the chemistry uh, with the two of them unfurl. That definitely makes sense. I mean, Neil Akina is a very capable pick-and-roll passer. That was never really the issue with him. It was more like his burst is not that great. And his finishing acumen, he's not a great leaper off of one foot. He does have the length extension, but he's really raw there. So that's going to take, I think, multiple years to get there. I'm not sure if he'll ever get there. That's why I always thought of him more as like a triangle point guard slash secondary handler type. But I really liked his projection, like you noted, because of his shot. I did a breakdown for the step in today, breaking down his game against the Lakers. And his shooting, he's always been a good, like, shooter off the catch when he's open like he's really really dynamic last year playing for Strasburg so that's something to look for and he's again someone who plays defense he has the length so when you pair him next to Chris Stapps and he's going to pass Chris Stapps the ball actually and pick and roll I mean they, they have some things to work with there um can you talk uh moving on from Ilokina and Porzingis just in case that won't be clear to everybody can you just talk me through like Connor Anthony Towns' defense like I just I think he might be the Wolves' worst defender now which is I don't you know after watching Andrew Wiggins for the past couple seasons is kind of saying something I just don't get it because it he has the physical tools and I thought even last year when he was bad it, it, it at least it looked like he was trying and and at least attempting to make the right reads and now just some of them are just so just out there and don't make any sense where if he'll jump uh, when a guy's still on the floor to contest a shot, like I, I don't even know. It doesn't look like he can hang with mobile bigs. I don't, is it? It. it I, I don't. Can you talk me through it? Because I honestly don't have the words. I think he's just making shit decisions, and he's not playing with effort. It's that. I think it might be that simple, even though it's probably more complex than that. Just from the surface level. He has the tools. He has the boat feet, so he's not going to be great in space. He's not going to be like a dynamic switch defender or anything, but he can play and pick and roll. It's just the decision-making and the effort that has to be there if you're a five. You can't survive when you don't have those two things. You, 
just can't, even if you have the physical tools. And he was a dynamic defensive prospect coming out of Kentucky as far as protecting the rim. It looked like he had the intelligence. And we just seen that all dissipate. It's really perplexing because there, I thought he started out his NBA career defending better than he is now. The regression is just absurd. I, I don't know how you could have possibly forecasted this to, to the extent that it's manifested on the court. So I'm kind of lost for words too, man. Like I, I watched the tape of him and it's like, I don't know who I'm looking at. Uh, it's it's ugly, and you know between him and Wiggins' defense, and then Wiggins' contract, and then uh, all of those forty minute appearances. Jimmy Butler's probably going to leave in two thousand and nineteen. I mean, I would jump ship just looking at like I'm just I'm pretty low on the Timberwolves, even though they're winning games. And I might be exact. Maybe Jimmy Butler likes logging forty plus minutes every other night. Who knows? Um, <laughs> Nikola Jokic, obviously, he's still dealing with his left ankle injury. I thought I thought one of my favorite things was. Uh, the other night, he was medically cleared to play, but Mike Malone just decided that he wasn't mentally ready. And part of me wanted to laugh, but then the other part of me was like, you know, he traveled to meet Jokic um, over the summer in Serbia. Like, so it's just, I, I like, maybe he has a feel for his personality, and you don't want a big guy favoring the right side of his body all of a sudden because he's worried about getting injured. And so maybe it was like kind of this low-key smart decision. I don't know. But just third-year impressions of, of Jokic, has it been when he's healthy? Has it just been everything you've expected? I got a pretty bad sample watching them earlier in the season. I watched the Charlotte game where he just didn't look like himself. The effort level, the body language was really poor. I know they went on a run more recently. I, I don't really know if I see any kind of distinct differences. What what can you tell me about his positioning on defense? Like, Has he been better in that capacity uh, when I when I watched him, he was getting boat raced there, but that was I think mostly effort. And obviously, he's not the best athlete moving. I think he's going to have to win with kind of that Marcus Ol kind of positioning intellect. Not to draw from a lazy international kind of comparison, but that's going to be how he has to win. I've always thought that his positioning is a little bit better than he gets credit for. A lot of people think that he's like one of the worst defensive bigs in the league, and I know a lot of the metrics are extremely high in his defense. So, what do you think about that? Well, yeah, I mean, the, his defensive rebounding is good. And when you have, he's going to be aggressive on the defensive glass because he wants the ball as quickly as possible to look up court. And that's that's defensive value. I, I think that matters. His positioning has absolutely been better. What's going to be huge for him is I don't think he'll ever anchor an average defense on his own. But when you had part, you know, it was a trade-off. The offensive struggles, I think, for him, I all of us, or at least I did, and a lot of other people underestimated how much of a learning curve there would be between him and Paul Millsap and trying to figure out yes. how each other likes to play. And they started to figure that out. But then having Paul Millsap at the defensive end, uh, the Nuggets haven't had a good four next to Jokic. Like even some of my favorite lineups were with Wilson Chandler at the four last year. You know, Wilson Chandler is is fine on the defensive end sometimes, but he's he's not Millsap. And I think that goes a long way because Jokic doesn't have to leave the vicinity of the rim as often. And when he does, like you you have guys behind you who you know are going to recover and and make the right reads. Uh, I I think he's. He's better than the numbers probably. I know there's the defensive metrics that are going to wait, like the total value that incorporate defensive rebounds. Like those are, I guess those are kind of what they are. I don't, I don't know how you interpret those, but like when you look and see that he's allowing 67% shooting at the rim, I think he's just a better rim protector than that number would show. And it just seems like he's um, a little bit better kind of watching when he's playing, defending off the ball. And he's like trying to keep his eye on where the possession's going, but also not getting killed on backdoor cuts. I, I think he's gotten a little bit better at that too. 
I don't, again, I don't think it'll be an issue where, you know, Paul Millsap being out for three months and him playing, it's a big deal because I don't think the defense will be good. But if you give him uh, an above average guy at the four or someone uh, who just tries as hard as Paul Millsap does consistently, that's when his defensive value will really shine. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that when you talk about how great he is at the offensive end. For sure. I mean, he's definitely the best playmaking five we have in the game as far as facilitating for others. They basically run their offense through him, operating that like high post, dribble handoffs, ridiculous passer. He gets a lot of, he gets some, I shouldn't say a lot. He gets some draft comparisons and he's like a total freaking outlier as a passer. Like his understanding of the game is insane. So, I mean, the skill level, I've never questioned that. It just comes down to the defense. And I agree, the acclimation with Millsap, I mean, defensively, Millsap's always going to help because he's a really smart defender. He's got the frame to, and the, the smarts to, to match that. So the, the offense, I think Adam Morris, who covers uh, the Nuggets, does a really good job kind of breaking down the intricacies of all of the the offensive fit issues. Millsap rotating to the wrong spot on the baseline when Jokic expects him in a different spot. Jokic has pretty good chemistry with Kenneth Fareed because of his dunker position finishing. So it's going to take an adjustment like it does for most teams. I think everybody saw that as a cl- clean fit. I was one of those people. Both of those guys have really awesome playmaking traits for their positions, but sometimes you just need a little time to iron things out. And uh, we talked about this before the pod. What do you do? You think the are you in the camp of the Nuggets are going to decline his team option and let him get to restricted free agency and just not even chance it? I am. I, I think that it's too much to risk when you have a franchise player potentially getting exposure to the open market. We don't know how the market's going to look two years from now. Precisely, more cap room can open up. We'll see. And I, I just wouldn't risk it. I, I don't. I don't know how you can even yet, even if you have to incur an enhanced. Um, cap hit with a luxury tax next season i think that's worth the trade-off of being a, being sure that you can keep Jokic. i so i tend to agree but i'm just i'm so in, because if you you know if you if you carry the these are just holds and wilson chandler if he opts out isn't going to get 19.2 million dollars a year but will barton is going to get more than the 6.7 uh, that his hold will be on if you then all of a sudden pencil in like Nicole Jokic for twenty five point three million. Like the Nuggets could kind of blow past one hundred and forty million dollars in payroll, and there are some things they can do, like move Kenneth Fareed, and maybe you can uh, find someone who's willing to swallow Darrell Arthur after he picks up his player option. I'm just I. There's part of me that's interested in what happens if they just want to remain flexible. Um, there, there's a path to them getting cap space. You know, if you renounce Chandler, get someone, uh, give them compensation to eat the final year of Arthur's deal. I'm not sure if you even need to give someone compensation um, to take on Kenneth Reed over the offseason. Like they can actually get to cap space then while working with Jokic's hold, or if they just pick up his team option, which is that's a fascinating scenario to me. But even more so, looking uh, through trades because this team isn't a finished product. And if you know that you're already going to have to reinvest in some other guys this year, is there value in making sure that you avoid the luxury tax so that you can be more flexible on the trade front as the season goes on? Because when you look at their roster as imperfect as it is, just super forward heavy, like they can still, they they could bust out like a a nice blockbuster trade offer. I'm like, I'm a huge, I'm a Hornets need to tear it down guy uh, with Kemba Walker's 2019 free agency coming up. And like, if he was to come on the trade market this summer or leading into next season or even this season, like you could go uh, after him with kind of the assets that you have. And I'm wondering if, if they consider that. And then the final reason why maybe they would consider that is have they built this relationship uh, with him where he knows that they'll take care of him and that he wants to be there when he is an unrestricted free agent. You even brought that up while we were speaking off air, just that this happens with agents all the time and knowing how close the Nuggets seem to have become with him and his family, uh, is that possibility there? I do. I lean towards no, but there's a big part of me that leans towards saying they, they should try it. 
Yeah, I think you addressed all the different vantage points well there. I, maybe that first option of clearing salary with like Fareed and stuff, maybe they attach an asset with, you know, if Chandler picks up his option, which you expect him to. So I think they're definitely going to maneuver around if if they decline Jokic's option. I don't think they're going to sit to the status quo and incur that kind of luxury tax payment. But the, the, the aggregating a bunch of assets and trading for like a Kemba Walker type is really interesting to me. I think that's a, an astute observation. Uh, moving on to Miles Turner, do you think people were a little bit too hard on him or are still being a little bit too hard on him this season? Like, it seems like I don't know what more people were necessary. Like, were they expecting him to be more switchable on defense, which, okay, fine, but you can't. Can you expect him to be more than league average from three? Maybe not. The, he's not the best guy with the ball in his hands, but he's making some better passes and he's still a great rim protector. He's been. He's been good, and when you're going to have Oladipo on the floor and then all these other shooters slash guys, though, who like to have the ball in their hands, like Darren Collison or Bojan Bogdanovic or even Lance Stevenson, uh, another you know different category altogether. So I've been, I haven't been wowed by Miles Turner, but I almost have been because it just seems like he's if this is the player he's going to be, then the Pacers still have themselves a gem. Yeah, I like him a lot. I mean, he's a great backline defender, has great ranges of rim protector. He's going to struggle in space, but I. I mean, he's a backline guy. That's what you get when you get this kind of center. He was often compared to Porzingis. Those two are kind of the same category because of being a unicorn type, but he's not the level of shooter that Porzingis is. He can't shoot off motion the same way. In time, maybe he develops a better three-point shot. I think that's going to be you know, into the future. Potentially, he doesn't have the same mechanics, the same kind of fluidity there. But he's also a guy you can throw the ball to in the post and he can hit that turnaround jump shot. I think he's a valuable player. He does things that are valuable in an NBA court. If you expect him to be like a transcendent star... I don't think that was ever – it might have been in his very uppercase ceiling outcome, but it wasn't really the likelihood. It wasn't the expected value that you were receiving at that pick. I think that he's definitely cleared that hurdle. He's been he's been impressive to me. Um, written in my notes here, and I'm going to – just to bring up that now, I, I do know written under the third-year player was, was to ask you about Willie Cauley-Stein, and I talked about him for the sophomores for some reason. I – one should thank you for being so kind not to correct me, but just want to point out to the listeners that, yes, I realized that I completely fucked up there. He's, he's literally in my third year. I think I was going on like a King's Ramble, and I just I steered right into it. So we've already talked about Willie Cauley-Stein. He would not make the top five sophomore ladder because he's not a sophomore. Um, uh, Kelly Oubre what, Jr. was the other guy that uh, I have written down. He's been just like – If his three-pointers are going to go down, and he's going to give you that um, effort level on the defensive end, and I know some of his shooting numbers have kind of depressed, and things haven't worked out um, for the bench when they've kind of tried to make him lead those lineups, but now they seem to have found this nice mix with Thomas Sadoransky, who I'm a big fan of. Uh, Just Kelly Oubre Oubre Jr. I like where it's at a point – if you're talking about using him to make a trade this year, I wouldn't use him as a salary dumping chip. I think I think he's much too valuable for that. And I would give some serious consideration if DeMarcus Cousins became available, um, which I, I don't think he will, but if he does, just because he's on that contract, or if they show interest in DeAndre Jordan, he's not someone that I'm giving up in that deal. I think that's entirely fair. He's really impressed me this year. He's someone who's in an optimal setting. You don't want him creating with the ball and like pick and roll. He was never that guy at Kansas. If he can play off the ball, they have two dynamic perimeter creators and then you know two dynamic perimeter shooters without a Porter, Beal, and of course, Wall facilitating. If he can just play that kind of corner three role where he crashes down on the weak side for rebounds and then defensively, he really utilizes his length, can cover ground on rotations, can provide some weak side rim protection, yeah, he's just one of those players that finds an optimal setting 
that a lot of guys, unfortunately, don't. So I really like him in that scheme. I think you could probably argue in a redraft he's a top seven guy just because you know what you're getting with him because he's going to shoot. And for a lot of these secondary guys, you have to shoot to have a lot of value unless you're just a dynamic, dynamic defender. And he's not that, in my opinion. He's a, he's a solid one, potentially. It's more that he's giving you that floor spacing and being a conducive fit to your primaries. Um, one of the other guys, Rondé Hollis Jefferson, I've been kind of impressed by. He's I, I People have told me that they saw his passing when he was in college and thought that he could be a big playmaker at the NBA level. I don't ever remember thinking that, and he's I've been kind of taken aback by him on that front for the past couple of years. His mid-range game is coming together. It doesn't look like he's ever going to be, you know, maybe he will be, it's, you know, 30% from three. Like that's, that's enough to get him to shoot it. It's the, my philosophy with Marcus Smart. Like if he's going to take him, he's facing the floor almost by default, but I just like what he brings. And he, I think this year you've even seen him kind of go up very intermittently against some fives and it hasn't turned out terribly. I, I really do like Rondé Hollis Jefferson. And I don't think, uh, you know, the Nets aren't going to give him an extension this summer because they're not at a point where they're reinvesting um, in their guys. But I'm, I am officially just fascinated by how his career arc is going to pan out. I'm curious to see what you think about him. He's putting the ball on the floor more. I like how he's being utilized at the four and even small ball five. He has some agility with the ball. He can get to the basket. He's always been a, a dynamic athlete. It's just been, does he have any kind of feel and what's his role going to be if he can't shoot? Kind of similar to Justice Winslow as a backup four from Miami. But yeah, Hollis Jefferson flashed some fla- some passing ability in college. I never thought he'd be like this kind of playmaker, even though he had like a decent enough handle to where maybe it was projectable. But he's just another guy who is being utilized, and we'll see how much of it is. Is he a guy who you find on a winning team? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if he's a starting caliber player on a winning team, but he's at least shown to be an actual NBA player and a rotation player, in my opinion. So I mean, good on him. Well, then maybe th- this was actually this is my follow up question to that to kind of loop in Justice Winslow and Stanley Johnson. Can you, if you had to rank those by just long term outlook, who who are how are they going to end up seeding as who's the better player? Oh God, uh, <laughs> I had this question when we first started our website, the Stepian, and somebody asked me to rank those three and Kelly Oubre, and it's just it's crazy now in retrospect. But um, I'm still I guess the highest on Justice. I just trust his intellect the most. Really. Um, yeah, as a backup four, I like Ubre more than him. Let's be clear about that. I, I think that he's more clearly translatable. I just never understood what Stanley Johnson does on the court, but I don't watch a lot of Detroit. I haven't seen them a lot this year. So admittedly, if he's improved a lot in a certain capacity, I'm not aware of that. But I think I like Winslow's approach the best. I trust his defense the most rotationally. He's always been smart there. And I if they're all like backup caliber players, I kind of like running pick and roll like sometimes through justice. I just think he's the smartest one and he can get to the rim in that setting. So it, it takes a very specific ecosystem for pretty much any of these guys to thrive if they're not going to shot a respectable percentage. And that's kind of how I just hear them. I guess I, guess I go Winslow, um, Rondé Hollis-Jefferson, and then Stanley Johnson just because I haven't seen Johnson as much and he hasn't really impressed me when I have. I re- I'm, ju- I'm still waiting for Johnson to do like just something spectacular on the offensive end. I think he's kind of even regressed this year as uh, like those pick-and-roll flashes that we've seen in the previous seasons just haven't been there. Um, yeah. this year. He, I might, I probably trust his defense though, more than either of those other three, but I might put Hollis Jefferson, um, and then go Stanley Johnson and then go to Justice Winslow. So I don't, I, I don't know. Um, Emmanuel Moutier 
What are your kind of thoughts on him? He's I didn't expect him to be shooting as well from three this deep into the season, but he just he doesn't necessarily seem to help the Nuggets. And I think it's good that he's become a little bit more comfortable playing without the ball because you have guys like Gary Harris and Will Barton and Jokic and Paul Millsap on the roster. You're not always going to be able to work on the rock, especially when you're you know you're now you're this bench player. But do you think that he is? ever going to be above a replacement level player or even a replacement level player in this league overall? I mean, it's hard to be confident. We saw Matt Moore tweet out the lineup data earlier. I think it might have been later last night or earlier this morning. My and eyes are pretty, bleeding. It's so damning, man. So it's – I don't know what he does that well. Like what is he ever going to do in plus fashion on the court? He's not a dynamic athlete. He's a good one. He's not a great one. If he can shoot a little bit off the catch, maybe you work that in. I've never been a fan of his decision-making on either side of the court. He has the frame. He has he has talent. It's just more, I think, potentially hypothetical talent than real talent that's going to manifest on the court. So I don't know, man. I mean, if you're a team, do you take a low-percentage dice roll on him potentially and, and see if you can extract – I don't know like <laughs> what kind of finishing ability he might have. I don't think he's a high-level passer, but he can definitely play pick and roll competently enough. It's just hard. This is like exactly the kind of player in the draft who I tend to avoid is non-elite athletes who have poor shooting indicators, and that's just a really dreadful archetype to build around. Another tough question for you, just to make sure, because this draft class is just so uh, incredibly deep. Uh, who is more likely to figure it out, um, or, or just who do you think is going to end up being the better player long-term, Jaleel Okafor? I know, and we're going different positions, but Jaleel Okafor, Frank Kaminsky, and Mario Hazonia, who I absolutely loved upon coming into the NBA, and that looks a little bit foolish. Good Lord, man. You're just laying them on me right now. Um. <laughs> I think what you can absolutely say, well, maybe not absolutely, but what kind of speaks to how bad all of them is, have been, and I don't necessarily know, maybe Okafor is like kind of situation-based. Um, I don't think you can really make that case for Frank Kaminsky, but Jarrell Martin looks like he might end up being better than all of them. At this point, he's been sneaky good too. But I, those three, I'm still kind of fat. Like I'm waiting on maybe not even Kaminsky so much, but just Okafor. Um, excuse me, and Hazonia, because I think their um, developments thus far could possibly have been curtailed by the situations that they found them in. Could possibly. I'm not saying they were, but maybe. I think I, I think I'd be most interested in rolling the dice on Hazonia just because of the position he plays, and if you can tap into that. I guess, hypothetical shot. He just hasn't really developed in the mental game that much. And that might be the issue. If Okafor did anything else but score, if he could rebound, I, I could see him having a backup five role, like kind of a bucket getter type where you want him high usage. He scores in the post in face-up situations. Still, that's not that valuable. At least that's a rotational player, but he just has nothing else on the court. So maybe if the Nets can tap into that and you know get him to play a little bit harder, he, he could have a very minimal amount of value. Kaminsky... In, in theory, I guess, because being like a stretch four or five backup, at least he can provide, provide some floor spacing. But I've never really watched him and been impressed at all. So, I mean, that's just a, that's a really difficult question to answer because I obviously am not high on any of those guys. Neither is the neither is the league probably. Does it count as a compliment if I've watched Frank Kaminsky and not like a bunch of times I said, "Wow, he's not as really crappy on defense as I thought that he would be." Does that can we count that as a compliment? Yeah, we can. I mean, um, at this point, we're pulling for straws here. So, <laughs> um, the final two, uh, Devin Booker. Have you seen 
I am not high on Devin Booker, but I am high on the fact that it seems like as his volume has increased, like we've seen his efficiency, which is not exceptional, but it also hasn't plummeted, which I think is encouraging. I also like what he's kind of done um, when healthy, making strides as a facilitator this year. I think he could actually end up being an above average uh, pick and roll passer and finisher if, again, the Suns just had a grasp on like spacing and, and kind of how to build a roster. So I don't know that I could say I've been pleasantly surprised, but I think you can be confident with the trajectory that he's on. I do not, however, know how I'm going to feel about when they inevitably give him uh, a max extension. That's going to make me – that's going to have, like, this Andrew Wiggins-like tinge to it. Yeah, I've always said he's more – like, his stealing outcome is more like a C.J. McCollum type if he can become that good of a shooter. And people have killed me for it, like the Suns fans. When I go on, like, Locked on Suns, like, they'll respond and be like, oh, he's way better scorer. I, maybe they okay. don't like, like cj mccollum that's like i've actually never I, heard that comparison i think i i love it but you're actually gonna get mad if you say oh you have the next cj mccollum who gets mad that's what i that's what i said i was like cj mccollum is awesome for what he is like he's about as good as you can get in that kind of secondary creator awesome shooter you're right booker has improved as a passer this year i think he's making the skip read better instead of just making the simple dive man read he's expanded his vision in that capacity He's tried harder defensively at times. It's still not effective. I don't ever see him really being a plus defensive player, but it's good to see at, at times better effort there. It's tough because is he a good enough playmaker to be an on-the-ball all-the-time player? Probably not. But if he's not, then how valuable is he off the ball if he isn't a dynamic shooter? So I th- still think there's a conundrum, but he's clearly – I mean, he's he's not a bust like a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people are going to be like, oh, he's going to get overpaid. And I'm definitely over that camp, by the way. But he still has some value, right? I mean, he's super young. We haven't seen these kind of scoring instincts and kind of he has, he can get a, he can get baskets in a lot of different ways. It's it's not a kind of player that I gravitate towards, but I still think there's value there, and he has room to improve. And he's gonna he might even just improve more as a, a as a playmaker, just because the point guard situation in Phoenix is so bizarre. Like you know the Mike James. Uh, you know, it's it's cool that he turned his two-way contract into an NBA contract, but he's not the point guard of the future. I don't know that you could say Tyler Ewis is either. And Brandon Knight has just kind of – he's always been more of a two, and he just fell off a cliff before he, he got injured. So he might just, you know, trial by fire, just be so good on offense at some point that if you're going to give effort on defense but still be kind of bad, then it's just going to be fine. And perhaps he could be that – I don't know that I view CJ McCollum as a max player, but like he, Booker could be that near max guy. I don't think that's out of the question. That's fair. Um, the last question would be, and it's probably the most innocuous one of the podcast, are you a Rich on Holmes fan? Because I, I like to cape for him more than every now and again. Yeah, I love him as a backup center, man. He plays with such activity. His around the basket as a finisher. I think it's important for a team to have someone like that. I, I don't like starting him next to Embiid and Simmons, but I like him as a backup five. And but it like kind of worked for a second. I saw. I was just like, that's so. It doesn't make sense. But I, I don't know. I love Rashawn Holmes. I'm. Uh, that might be the only way they can kind of carve him out minutes though. Now when you have like Booker there, and if they're still intent on playing Amir Johnson at all, unless they're going to get rid of him at the trade deadline, I, I really do like him though. And he was good, really good in that higher usage role last year after Embiid went down. Yeah. No. I, I'm a big fan of his game. I thought that was an excellent pick. Um, just to, since I've kept you long enough to do get through some quick uh, restricted free agency scenarios, Quinn Capella, um, Daryl Morey had said earlier that he Capella could not possibly price himself out of the Rockets' range this summer. And with restricted free agents, it's you know they don't really have leverage like teams get to match. But I, I was almost wondering like Capella's been good 
bordering on great, and he's perfect for that Rockets team. But Moore gets to stay, say stuff like that because no one's going to pay like these non-spacing bigs really. And I don't know what what team if you're going to waste your cap space for you know 48 hours uh, on someone restricted free agency, it's probably not going to be Clint Capella. He's been fantastic. Um, is he like is he going to be a 15 million dollar a year player though? And do you think that he's worth that much? I think he might get that. Nerlens Noel 470 contract offer maybe as a show of good faith by Houston. It's just hard, man, with restricted free agents that are that are centers that aren't special centers. There's we've seen the market for that is is pretty damn tepid. I think he's worth 15, 16 million dollars a year, especially for them. The Rockets need that kind of lob generation or gravitational lob threat for Harden. They need someone who they can throw the ball to on these pick and rolls. And he really has that explosiveness. He's developed as a short roll passer. So I, I do think he's really important for that team, but it's hard to really, with how little teams have cap space, who do you really see around the league? You know, like you nobody noted, it's a big, <laughs> exactly. Like nobody really needs a big. So wh- where's the market? Like it, it could be, do I think he's worth 15 million? Absolutely. Does it get it? I won't pretend to have any idea what's going to happen this summer. Yeah, I can't, after I don't were you like me and just misread what was going to happen last summer? Oh yeah, that was yeah, that was weird. <laughs> that was like I just look back at some of the stuff I wrote and I, I can't even read it because it's just so off. Um, I'm actually I should probably bring up Aaron Gordon next, but I want to bring up Kyle Anderson because he was so good um, before he he got injured for the Spurs. What do you think he's going to be worth in restricted free agency? It's so I guess a team won't go after him because they'll just view it as like oh he was playing well. Um, in his fourth year because he's with the Spurs and he's not super athletic. Um, and also just like the Spurs are just weird too. They get these guys to take discounts. But I, I think he could be, if you were going to pay him, I don't think I'd have an issue giving him close to or at and around the mid, like mid-level money. I think that's fair. It just comes down to the dynamics you've already stated is that, I mean, is he going to thrive outside the Spurs system, especially when he doesn't have like a clear translatable role? Is he a three or is he a four? Uh, a lot of teams are going to have, you know, they're, they're, they're not going to know what to really do with him to maximize his talent. He was always a tricky one in the draft. Everybody was like, oh, he's going to go to San Antonio because nobody knew what to do with that kind of player. So I don't, I'm not sure if I see the market really breaking bank for someone like that, but we'll see. Bigger market uh, for services, Kyle Anderson or Julius Randle? Oh boy, <laughs> it's what is, is it just is it just Julius Randle because people know that the Lakers can't keep him if they want to get two max stars or like two high impact guys. I think that's definitely a fair way to look at it. And if you view him as like a, a potentially impactful situational big who has perimeter skills, maybe a team likes that, like the Knicks or something, if they want to pair him next to Porzingis in certain matchups, that might make some sense. But I don't know. It, it's tough to address like situational big value too. I think I'm most fascinated to see what the bigs get in this market, Randall, Capella, et cetera. Are you maxing out Aaron Gordon? Or if you're the Magic, are you mat- matching a max? I guess you have to match it because if you're not going to trade him, I was I, I wrote something the other day that said if the like if the Magic really they need to go in like the cornerstone market, maybe Gordon's that guy. But we're we're basically basing this off of a one year sample because of how poorly they used him in the past. Where where are you just like at with him? Or is is he a near max type of guy worth investing in? And do you see a team maybe going after him to try and force Orlando's hand? Or maybe they think that the Magic won't because their cap situation is so iffy as it is with Fournier uh, and Biombo on the books. I think they have to match even though the different management structure now, it's not the same man structure that drafted him, but you can't just give him up for nothing like you noted. I was most interested in his extension, actually, out of anybody. I was really curious to see if there was any kind of number that was leaked because if 
like final offer was like 20 million. I thought they should have taken that. I mean, it's hard to project kind of the shooting progress that he's made this year. And it's been the entirety of the difference with him. And it always kind of was, but if they had any kind of indicators that that was going to be the case, I think you had to lock him up then. I do think maybe there's a team, none really come to mind, but he's an athletic combo forward. I mean, hopefully he plays the four damn after all those years of wasted <laughs> time. But I, th- I think he'll be in demand just given his age, how much he's already improved. He can still improve ball handling. He's not super shifty unless it's in a big space situation, but th- there are things he can improve. I still think there's some maybe a little untapped potential there. Yeah, I just, I don't, I'm not sure what team would throw money at him. If the Nets were shaping up to like be that team that'll have max cap space again this summer, which they're not, like they could go the, you know, like the Otto Porter route like they've done in the past or the, the Allen Crab route who they eventually ended up with. That was some. Um, top notch irony, but I'm kind of with you there. He's I don't I still don't know if I'd pay him twenty million dollars a year though. You match, but like if I'm just trying to evaluate him in a vacuum and I, or I'm a team with cap space interested in him, I cannot come up with a single team in the league uh, who will have cap space or might be able to carve out the cap space uh, that it would make sense for them to to give him that kind of money. I'm just I'm not sold there yet. I think that's fair. I mean, we haven't seen it for a larger sample. It's just considering his youth and how much he's improved as a shooter already. I do think there's some untapped skill upside he's always been kind of a high IQ player even in Arizona it was just the jump shot mechanically wasn't there and he's taken you know three years to iron that out and if you're not buying it completely I would understand that but I I, st- I think that he's probably a league average to better three-point shooter who can big space play make and there just aren't a lot of guys who can do that um the final two players but uh and then I'll mercifully let you go and I they're not I'm not I'm just naming guys that I find if that wasn't clear that I just find most interesting um I really want to see uh, kind of what Rodney Hood is going to end up getting in restricted free agency. And I, I, what do you kind of peg him at uh, in terms of his value? Yeah, that, that's another guy just because of the scoring and how the league values wing scoring. It's just the injury history, of course, is, is going to suppress his market likely. I thought he was going to get around that Gary Harris deal. I thought that they were, I'm not sure it's saying they're really that, they're kind of comparable as far as if Hood's at his peak his pick and roll kind of pull up shooting. He can do a lot there. It's just the injury history combined with, I don't know, just how the wing market is going to evolve this summer. I do think that this is the kind of player that teams will probably overpay for if they have cap space. It'd be really interesting. I don't know. I've if if you can get him for like fourteen or fifteen, and that's probably low. Like I, I, I like you're, if you're an outside team and you give him fourteen or fifteen, the Jazz will match. But just looking at him in that vacuum again. 14 or 15 million and then the long-term future with him and donovan mitchell might be really interesting in utah if they develop uh any sort of chemistry um and so who gets paid more marcus smart or yosef nurkic and the only reason i think that this might be a question is jason tatum is currently boston's fourth highest paid player and if you believe that they ever want to be active on the trade market again which we should believe that they do uh, you can, one, assume that they'll eventually move on from Hayward or Horford or maybe Irving, which I don't think you should necessarily assume. Or two, they can kind of, like, not, like, demonstrably overpay their guys, but can you give Marcus more, uh, excuse me, Marcus Smart, like, $14 million or $15 million over two years or three years or just so that you can use him as the salary-matching trade chip because then the contract doesn't look that bad? And then I think just Nurkic, a lot of people have kind of pegged him as this high upside guy, even though... Uh, that's what he did in Portland was always going to be unsustainable last year. And we've kind of seen that he's not having the same impact for them. So I know it's big versus guard, but it's, you know, neither of them are wings. So it might actually end up being an interesting question. Yeah. I think at one point I would have said probably Marcus smart, but with how 
Zach Collins hasn't really developed at all. Like he was, he looked much farther away in summer league than I think a lot of people expected that were high on him. So if we haven't seen that kind of development, what are there really other options at the five? Do they have, they don't really have the flexibility to add a competitive five prospect. So that might increase Nurkic's demand there, even if they're not playing. I haven't watched a lot of Portland because they're blacked out here in Seattle because that's what we get for losing a team. <laughs> oh my God. We get, we're blacked out in Portland too. So I honestly haven't, I've probably seen two games of Portland this year when they're on TNT or something. And yeah, Nurkic, I, I've never been that high on Nurkic, but he might have the upper hand as far as demand. I'm not sure how much demand Marcus will have around the league just with the lack of shooting, just that kind of narrative, even though he helps you in so many different ways. I do think he probably gets like 12, 13 million from Boston potentially though. And it just comes down to how much demand Nurkic has in that situation. Um, and I'm just, what I respect about Marcus Smart and, you know, quietly over the past two postseasons, he's actually been like kind of good from three point range, but he, he just shoots them. And I, there might just be inherent value in that, in having a guy who, yeah, they're not going in, but he's going to shoot him. So you at least kind of have to fake like you're going to guard him. And, you know, teams don't guard him all the time, but just, I, 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 Maybe it's unreasonable, but I just appreciate his willingness to fire away. Oh, yeah. I mean, you have to have guys that aren't what people call record scratchers. you got to take the shots that are open. You can't pass things up because, I mean, you're just playing the percentages at that point. I have a quick question for you, though. We're oh, talking about respect, respect, restricted guys. Jabari Parker, what the hell do you do with him? Oh, that's a good question. I would – so I'm, I, I'm just – when you look at him with the Bucks, I don't think he's necessarily a great fit. Like, you would have to stagger minutes really well so that he gets a lot of run without Bledsoe and Antetokounmpo on the floor just to kind of maximize his potential because I don't want to give him $20 million a year to be the third um, option alongside those guys and just assume this off-ball role. And then you have the two ACL injuries. And so he comes back in February. What is that at most? What is he going to have, like a 28-game sample size? So you essentially have to base how much you're going to pay him off of that. If I was the Bucks, I would like, would he be willing to – uh, depending on what their tax situation is, like, would he be willing to accept like a one-year max or like a two-year overpay so that you can extend the flyer a little bit, but to where the deal isn't crippling uh, if if he doesn't hit? I I wouldn't give him anything close to max money though over a regular term contract. What about you? I agree with you. I just think it's the toughest it's the toughest political situation just because he has ties to that area. They drafted him number two. You can't just let him sign with another team, even if it's for like $22, $23 million a year. Just That's going to look so bad for your organization without getting anything in return. So I think they kind of have to match almost. It's a very unenviable situation, especially if he comes – well, I guess if he comes back and he's less explosive because that's his main thing is attacking the rim, being explosive, and kind of being a scorer type there. If he's not that player, it makes the decision a lot easier because if you don't think he can recover and get his past athletic form, he just doesn't do a lot else for you. And he's definitely redundant, redundant on that roster. I think he's a full-time four. Giannis has taken that role as the full-time four kind of initiator type. You could, you could probably play lineups where you can play both of them together at the four-five, but you're not going to start games like that. So do you want to allocate you know, $25 billion a year to Jabari Parker when he's not a stylistic fit? When at the highest levels of basketball, he's going to be a liability defensively because he is just so egregiously bad off the ball defensively. I, it, it's, it's really brutal. So... In a vacuum, I agree with you. I, I wouldn't pay him that amount. I'm just really curious to see if they will just because of the pressures they're facing based on draft position and all the local ties. Um, I actually have two more quick uh, – one of them's random, but I, I find it fascinating, um, and the other one's kind of loaded. And I'm, I'm going to start with the loaded one. Uh, let's fast forward two years. Who's the more valuable player um, looking at both ends of the floor, Spencer Dinwiddie or Andrew Wiggins? 
<laughs> oh God. You're gonna have everybody with pitchforks coming after me now. Um, are we considering contract valueness or just straight on court value? No, I'll remove contract from it uh, just because Spencer Dimwitty, like the Nets can keep him for nothing uh, next year. Yes, which they will. That'll be one point seven. But you know, and he's not going to get anything close to max money when he is a free agent in two thousand nineteen. But I just so from watching him, I think he's going to end up being a a, a lot. And I'm, that's the reason I'm asking this question. I don't hate Andrew Wiggins, um, and if you need a shot from scratch, he's going to be the guy to still get it from you. But looking at Spencer Dinwiddie's decision making out of the pick and roll, look at how well he kind of. Um, shimmies between being on the ball but off it and then shooting the lights out from three and then his length defensively it seems like he's more athletic now than he was in college um, before his ACL injury and I, I, I think I honest to God think that when he probably plays more too when you have D'Angelo Russell healthy who's another guy we um, didn't talk about on this podcast when we got to the third year players but he's injured he was interesting beforehand but when he's going to kind of assume that role uh, with Jeremy Lin there too I just think he's going to shine defensively and I I could see a scenario where he ends up being like the more valuable player and I'm not trying to take away from Andrew Wiggins I'm just that low on like why did you max this guy out already and if you were going to max him out you should have waited until restricted free agency yeah that was really succinctly put I I agree with basically all that it's a tough decision it's just it it seems ridiculous to answer you know Dinwiddie over Wiggins in this scenario just based on upside and of course that's roster dependent if you need a potential star I guess in theory not in reality. You would choose Wiggins based on, again, the hypothetical right. upside. But I, I like I like Dimwitty a lot. I like what I've seen from him. And the actual final question, um, and these two aren't versus each other, and one of them isn't even a restricted free agent. Uh, how much is Joe Harris and Doug McDermott going to get paid this summer? I've been taken aback by both. Doug McDermott, fantastic cutter this year, still shooting well from three. Yes. And he, he has the Kyle Korver, I try really hard on defense, and it, most of the time it doesn't work out, but sometimes it does feel to him. And I love watching him now. Um, didn't like watching him because he didn't play enough in Chicago, really. He was, like, okay in Oklahoma City, but I've loved watching him when he's been in New York. And then Joe Harris is just, like, uh, he was hitting these knockdown threes, and, like, now he sometimes puts the ball on the floor. And I just think there's value in having those guys around you because they're in theory those are like the perfect compliments that you want and I, i'm just i'm I, i'm curious what, what do you think that they could kind of fetch in free agency and doug mcdermott's kind of screwed up the knicks's future when you think about it because their cap situation is already weird and now he looks like a player they're going to want to keep and if you have to pay him like is it out of the realm of possibility to think that's like he gets like nine million a year or ten million a year like maybe that seems blasphemous and the market will depress but that's no that's not chump change but it also doesn't seem unreasonable to say that it doesn't. No, I was going to say on the ceiling outcome type, maybe eight to 10 million. It depends on how the market breaks. Of course, both guys are bench off screen kind of gravity shooters. McDermott moves really well off the ball. Joe Harris has done that as well. And both of them have value in like more of a motion tight system where you can really leverage their shooting. It just depends on what the options are and how willingly these teams are going to use those uh, mid-level exceptions this summer, the teams that don't have cap space. That could be probably the number where I see capping out maybe a little bit over 8 million or so. But it's at one point I thought that these guys were like minimum guys or maybe right. two, three million a year. You take a, you take a flyer and it's not unforeseeable that it could be a lot more than that now. Joe Harris. I don't, I, I have no, I don't even think I could peg a value. Like I, part of me thinks like a taxpayer mid-level money would be good for him. Yeah. Um, but then part of me thinks that maybe that's too high, but then I'm looking at like, well, he's not only shooting threes, like he's putting the ball on the floor more this year and he's, you know, he's 24 appearances in, he's shooting 72.2% inside three feet. It's just like, that's not, how fluky is that you have to ask? But if, if you have a guy, no, he's not a great defender, but if you have a guy who's going to be able to score in a couple of different ways like that and be efficient while he's doing it, 
I, maybe taxpayers mid-level money, maybe a little bit more. Um, of course, we thought there were reports that Ian Clark was going to get mid-level money last year and had signed up at the minimums. Like that's the whole, you know, like that. That's what's so hard to profile. Yeah, and I would be much more confident just to restate. I would be more confident McDermott getting paid more than Joe Harris. I think that five million for would sure be more of the ceiling. Yeah, and again, I haven't seen a lot of Joe Harris, so if he's been that great this year, then. <laughs> I mean, that, that's great for him. <laughs> yeah, offensively. Um, but yeah, I'm with you with McDermott. Um, that'll do it. I appreciate you allowing me to take up so much of your time. I had a blast, and we hit we hit on a lot of stuff on the first and fourth year players. Uh, I talked about Willie Cauley-Stein as a sophomore because, you know, why the hell not? I forgot that he was in that Carl Anthony Towns draft class, apparently. Um, if you want to talk to Cole on Twitter, which you absolutely should, he's a fantastic follow. Uh, he covers so much. Like, you, you guys, you're going to love it. It's the draft. He's on top of it. Um, he is, as you could probably already tell through the podcast, like he's just a CBA expert and he knows his NBA stuff. You need to follow him on Twitter. He is at Cole Zwicker. That's at Cole, C-O-L-E, Zwicker. That's Z-W-I-C-K-E-R. Make sure to give him a follow. Uh, again, he's the co-founder and a writer for The Stepian, uh, scout for Net Scouts, and contributes uh, to The Step Back. And he's also just on podcasts all the time, and, and he was great on this one. If you want to follow me, I am at Dan Favale, F-A-V-A-L-E. You can follow the absentee co-host Andy Bailey at Andrew D. Bailey. Please follow our sponsor NBA Math at NBA underscore math. And please follow Hardwood Knox at Hardwood Knox. And also remember to please try and get those ratings, reviews, and subscriptions on iTunes up there. We uh, definitely appreciate it. And since Andy's not here, I only have to say one shout out, and that will be to Kyle Anderson. So until next time. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.